0: What's up, guys? Welcome back to the Daily Bible Reading Snapshot podcast. Welcome to week number six of our reading as we're digging into the end of the book of Exodus and covering the bulk of the book of Leviticus and then covering Matthew 23 to 26. So here in Exodus, remember, we've been reading all week about how God is telling the Israelites how to build the worship center. And, uh, you know, I hope that you have some kind of study Bible or you're looking up pictures of what you're reading Because that's going to be especially important in Exodus 37, 38, 39, 40. Because the end of this book is all about how to make the different instruments for the temple. And uh, not the temple, the tabernacle at that point. We're going to see a lot of those same instruments in the temple as well. The first temple and the second temple. So this really lays the foundation for how God asks to be worshipped. Which is a good principle here that we should notice that God is the one who sets the terms and the limits for how he should be worshipped, how people should serve him. And there's no better example than that than the book of Leviticus, which is why the majority of what we'll read this week in the Old Testament comes from the book of Leviticus. And many people are scared to read this book, and many people are bored by this book because they think it's repetitive and it's all about sacrifices that they don't have to do anymore. So what's the point of the book of Leviticus for you as a 21st century Christian? Okay. Here's what I would argue. It's that you would realize that God is too holy for us. That's one very clear aspect of the book of Leviticus. God is too holy and we are sinners. And because of our sin, God demands sacrifice. And although you tend to think as a Christian, well, I'm not doing these sacrifices. So maybe I just don't need sacrifice. The reality is no, you do need sacrifice. Just like we think, oh, we don't need a priest. Well, you know, the priesthood of the believer. It's like, no, you you still need a priest. It's just that you have something better than what's described here. You have something that's complete, that's really doing what you need. Um, so for example, the book of Hebrews speaks to these ideas. Here's just a couple texts from the book of Hebrews that kind of might help set up your reading for the book of Leviticus. Starting in uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11, it says, But when Christ appeared... As a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, like the tabernacle that we're about to read about, and then in parentheses it says, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, so he's not talking about the tabernacle from the end of the book of Exodus, this is Hebrews 9:12. he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption for if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, which is a good summary of what the book of Leviticus is about. God is going to give rules and instructions for sanctification, for holiness, for the removal of guilt from a sinful person so that they can enter God's presence and worship him. Right. The author of Hebrews says, if it did that for the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now, that's a complicated section of scripture, but what's the point? God is holy. We are sinners. We need sacrifice. So, the book of Leviticus shows these Israelites, this is how God wanted them to do it. Uh, even later in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, it says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This is very interesting. All throughout the Old Testament, the shedding of blood is what's necessary for sin to be atoned for, to be cleansed. Now, that's why if you go back in, in your mind to the Old Testament, and as you read the book of Leviticus this week, how often does the word blood show up? How often does the word sacrifice show up or holiness or consecration? or offering show up. It shows up all the time. And the reason is because of our sin. Because these Israelites are sinners, which we already saw. Like One good example of this is, we read last week, God gives the law to Moses on Mount Sinai, but what's happening as God is giving the law at the the base of Mount Sinai? The people of Israel are stepping into further and further sin. So even as God's law is given, we see that God is too holy for his people. as we were reading in Hebrews 9, I read Hebrews 9, 11 through 14. I read Hebrews nine twenty two, But later in Hebrews 10, here's what's important for us to recognize. Hebrews 10, 4 says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And the whole point there is these things in the book of Leviticus, the offerings that we're going to read about, they are pointing forward to the greater reality of Christ. Now, what that means is that when a lamb is, is slain or a goat is, receives this punishment put on them figuratively it doesn't actually take away sins in the way that jesus actually takes away sin so don't get it confused thinking in the old testament it was the sacrifices that actually atoned for sin right we believe it was a picture to the real atonement in jesus so when jesus died it says he died a once for all sacrifice for sins so all the sins that were ever paid for by jesus were paid for in his act of sacrifice, which includes the sins of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and the people in the Old Testament. But while that might be the greater reality, God still commands these Israelites to do these sacrifices. So here's a little overview of the book of Leviticus. It starts in the verse seven chapters where Moses is going to get instructions for the offerings, and God will be very clear. This is how you do it. This is how you offer these kind of offerings and those kind of offerings. A good verse to kind of summarize this comes in Leviticus 7. It's the end of the section that we're just talking about. Leviticus 7.37 says, This is the law of the burnt offering, of the grain offering, of the sin offering, of the guilt offering, of the ordination offering— that means the ordination of these priests— and of the peace offering, which the Lord commanded Moses on Mount Sinai— On the day that he commanded the people of Israel to bring their offerings to the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai. So that's Leviticus 7, 37 to 38. Now, here's why that's important. Because the first seven chapters, we'll be reading all about these different offerings with a lot of specificity. Now, we read the specificity and we think, okay, this is a lot of details. Details I don't need, right? Why do I need these details? If you're never going to offer a burnt offering, why do you need to read about it? Well, I want it to leave an impression on you as you read it. What's the impression? God is so holy and our sin is so bad and we need sacrifice and offering for sin. We need it. Uh, Even in chapter five, it talks about there's certain offerings that you offer for unintentional sins. It says, what if someone breaks one of God's commandments unintentionally? Sacrifice is needed. I mean, I just want you to think how antithetical that is to everything our culture says about what's right or wrong they'll preach at you. Well, you know, it's not sin or it's not wrong. If you don't know you're doing wrong, God's word says the opposite. It says, no, God is too holy for even his people. He's too righteous. I mean, our sin is, is constant. I mean, think about it. When's the last time you sinned? What kind of offering did you need to give to God to atone for that sin? Well, the correct answer is, well, Jesus is that once for all sacrifice for our sins. But think about it. Every sin needs judgment. Every sin needs to be atoned for. When? when's the last time you sinned? And I know that's kind of a big question, but, you know, think about it. We sin every day. And if you think, well, I, you know, didn't hurt anyone today, or I didn't, you know, cuss anybody out today, or I I didn't, you know, beat anyone today. Well, that's good. But did you leave undone any of the things that needed to be done that God clearly commanded in Scripture? Well, according to James 4, if you know the right thing to do and you don't do it, for you it's sin, right? There aren't just sins of commission. There's also sins of omission. And even the sins of omission, there's the ones that we know that we did, and there's the ones that we don't know we did. What does this drive us back to? As we read Leviticus, God is too holy. God is so holy, and he's so righteous, and we are so sinful, and we fall short, and we need offering for sin. We need atonement for sin. And we look to Jesus, the one who is our atonement, and he was our Passover lamb that was sacrificed on our behalf, as 1 as Corinthians says. So, all right, a lot of things here. First seven chapters are all about offerings. Then chapters 8 and 9 are about the consecration of Aaron and his sons. So even it's like the people that give the offerings, they need to be set apart as holy. So that word consecration, important word, it means to be set apart as holy. So here in chapters 8 and 9, Moses says for Aaron and the sons of Aaron, which are all Levites, by the way. That's why we have the, the word, the name Leviticus. It's because all these people are Levites. And when did the Levites take over as the priests? Well, it was when they were zealous for the Lord to take out the people who committed sexual immorality back in the book of Exodus. So they're set up as the priests. But notice, even as you read, Aaron and his sons are going to be set up as priests, and everything looks like it's going well until we get to chapter 10. What happens in chapter 10? Well, two sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, they're consecrated. They've been set apart. They're from the right family. They know the rules about God's holiness, but they break the rules of God's holiness. In chapter 10, it says that Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the lord which he had not commanded them so whatever they did they did wrong they weren't careful or they intended to do the wrong thing i think later in the chapter might give us some explanation of why this happened but the next verse says then fire came out from before the lord and consumed them and they died before the lord so these are two consecrated priests Like they're doing the right thing. They're, they're from the right family, but they do wrong and they break God's holiness rules and God consumes them with fire. Then Moses said to Aaron, and this is verse three, this is what the Lord has said among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And then it says, Aaron held his peace. So clearly Aaron was upset that his two sons who were just consecrated were now consumed by the fire of the lord because they did wrong and notice what aaron has to hear in order to not be upset about what happened he needs to hear the word from the lord that i will be sanctified by the people who are near me the priests those who know most about god they're actually the most responsible to follow god's rules and hold it up for all the people to follow too and this is just a good lesson just because you're an important person doesn't mean you don't have to obey God's rules just because you're consecrated and set apart. Doesn't mean that sin can't take you out just because you're in an elevated status. Like these two sons were doesn't mean that you are free from temptation to do wrong and even free from God's judgment. This is just so important and something that should be sobering to all of us that these two guys who knew plenty of things, they did what was wrong and, um, They paid the price for it. And what's the lesson, right? God is too holy for us. Do you notice how we keep getting back to that? Well, in chapter 11, 12, 13, Moses is going to give the rules for the purity, the purity laws about clean and unclean animals, about childbirth, about leprosy, and about basically how should you operate in this society. And one section of key verses that you should clue in on is in Leviticus chapter 11, verses 44 and 45. God says, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. Now, that phrase is repeated in the New Testament in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, where Peter says, Christians, you should think of yourself and strive to be holy because God's holy. So that same concept does apply to us in the New Testament era, although the specifics for what these what purity looks like is slightly different. So he goes on. He says, you shall not defy yourselves with any of the swarming things that crawl on the ground, which now in the New Testament, does the dietary laws, do they still matter? Well, the book of Acts should give us the answer of that because God speaks to Peter in Acts chapter 10 and says, do not call common or unclean what I now call clean. And he said that to open the door so now Jews and Gentiles exist in one body called the church now in this church age uh, where the point before was Israel was supposed to be a separate nation among other nations. So when he gives these rules about what kind of animals to eat, that's not something you need to follow anymore because God was very clear in the New Testament that that does not apply to you any longer. Uh, So then in verse 45, this is Leviticus 11.45, God says, for I am the Lord, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. So I saved you. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Now, we have a good New Testament parallel to that in First Peter. For Peter says, you know, you weren't saved with the blood of a lamb. You weren't saved by the blood of bulls and goats. You weren't bought by money. You were saved by the precious blood of Christ. Just like here, God connects the ideas of salvation and now Sanctification and holiness. The New Testament does the same thing. So as you read this, do you realize that the Lord has brought you up out of a slavery that is greater and more perilous than the slavery that the Israelites were in Egypt? God brought you out of slavery to sin. You, therefore, Christian, should be holy because God is holy. That's really the key insight from the book of Leviticus that I want you to get. Now, turning to Matthew, as we look at Matthew 23, Jesus continues to condemn the Pharisees for basically missing the whole point of God's law. They were not really righteous people. They appeared externally righteous, but remember, they were not following God's word from the heart. And really that leads to the end of chapter 23, where Jesus weeps because Jerusalem and the religious establishment and the people in that city overall were not repentant. Overall, they were pretty self-righteous, and we see that evidenced by what is about to happen when they shout, crucify him to Jesus. And then that starts the section where the majority of our New Testament reading this week will be in chapter 24 and 25, which is what scholars call the Olivet Discourse. Remember, the Gospel of Matthew has five key sermons. The first was the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5 to 7. The second was the Missionary Discourse, that was in chapter 10. The third was that big section called the Parables of the Kingdom in chapter 13. And then the fourth sermon was in chapter 18 where Jesus teaches the church how they should operate as the church. Now we're to the fifth and final one. What's the last sermon about from Jesus in the gospel of Matthew? Well, it's about the last time. This is about the end. And it's set up when the disciples ask Jesus in Matthew 24, 3, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the closing of the age? Very, very important question that we all have answers to, right? Who doesn't want to know about eschatology? Who doesn't want to know about the apocalypse? Who doesn't want to know about the end times? So this has always remained a relevant passage as Christians have looked forward to the end times and look forward to what is going to happen when Jesus comes back. So you can really look at the Olivet Discourse in a lot of different phases, but I think the important thing to do, just like in any section of scripture, read it simply, read it straightforwardly, and I think there's some steps here. When I went through it, I, I counted 11 things that took place in chapter 24 from verse 4 to 31. Right. The the first one is actually not even—I didn't even count this one. This one's just implied. This is number zero because it comes before. Jesus says, remember, this temple is going to be destroyed. So that's very important. Right? That, that happens even before any of this happens because that happens in chapter uh, 24, verses 1 and 2. But then after Jesus is asked this question, he basically gives 11 things. Here's the first one. There's gonna be great trouble. There's gonna be wars and famines and earthquakes. And he calls these things birth pains. They're like the birth pains that come upon a woman before she gives birth. So it's the beginning of labor. All the moms out there know what this feels like, right? It's like the beginning of the birth pains. This feels bad. I, how long will I have to go through this? When can I get the epidural, right? That's what we're asking for when the wars and the famine and the earthquake. That's all how he figuratively puts it. Then he says there's going to be a big persecution of God's people. He says they're going to be martyred. And then in that process, some will fall away. It says there's some who have this love for God that appears to be strong, but when lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved, which is a good principle for any time, whether it's the end times or now, uh, there'll be people that will turn away, but particularly he's talking about in the end times. Then the fourth thing that I noted was that Jesus says the gospel is gonna go out to the whole world. So that's very important that this stuff is not gonna happen until the gospel goes out to to the whole world. And the fifth thing takes place in verse 15. He says the abomination of desolation, which again like what is that? Well that comes from Daniel chapter 9, Daniel 11 and Daniel 12 where there's something that's going to happen in the temple where there's going to be someone who defiles the temple. Now historically that did take place in 168 BC, but then it seems like Because Jesus uses this language, and Paul uses this language in 2 Thessalonians, we're looking forward to this happening again. So it's like a lot of things in Scripture where there's a primary fulfillment that happens in history that we look in the past, and then there's something in the future. So that is going to take place at the end. Then in chapter 6, it says there's going to be people fleeing Jerusalem, and there's going to be a great tribulation such as has never been on the beginning never been on the world since the beginning of the world, and there will never be again, right? So this is the time that that, uh, theologians like to call the great tribulation. So something's going to happen in this area. Something's going to happen to God's people. That's just going to be really, really hard. These Israelites are going to be fleeing and be in a lot of trouble. Then the seventh thing that I noted was that people will claim to be Christ and they'll be false. So he says, don't be misled. If people come around and they say, yep, I'm Jesus, don't believe that. And then verse uh, 29 is very important. It says immediately after the tribulation of those days. So there's a time marker there. So there's going to be some tribulation and then after or at the end of or this happens subsequent to whatever is taking place in the first seven of those items. Number eight is that after the tribulation, there's going to be signs in heaven. Now, what does that mean? Well, we see those in Isaiah. We see those in Ezekiel. We see those in Joel. We see those in Amos, and then most famously, we see those in the book of Revelation, and they all are associated with the day of the Lord. So, it talks about the sun being darkened, and the moon not giving its light, and stars falling from heaven, and the powers of heaven being shaken. Here's a very important question that we should ask, like, has that happened yet? I think the best answer is no, that has not happened yet. That's very strong apocalyptic language about the end of the world that has not taken place yet. So this is going to take place at the end or subsequent to this great tribulation time. Then, very clearly, it says, The Son of Man will appear on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now, we know for sure this has not taken place yet because we see here uh, this is the end. This is when Jesus comes back. And remember, what's the whole setup to this this conversation about the end times. It's the disciples asking, what's going to happen when you come back? So this is the ultimate answer. Jesus will come on the clouds of great glory, which is a quote that we get in Daniel chapter seven. We also see it again in Revelation 19. We get even more detail about Jesus and how he returns there. And then it says, all the tribes of the earth will mourn when they see him. So something about Jesus coming back is not going to be a good thing for most people on earth. Zechariah even talks about how the Jews will look on him whom they have pierced and they'll weep for him because in their guilt, they know they're the ones that killed Jesus. And then the 11th thing, last thing that I see here in verse 31, he says, he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds and from one end of heaven to another. So the idea there is at that point, Christians, whether in heaven, on earth, everybody is brought together at that point. And then I think the conclusion to this section is in verses 32 through 35 where he says, "Learn a lesson from the fig tree. As soon as it branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is very near at the very gates." So, what's the idea? It's that when you see all these signs, they're going to happen in quick succession. So, Jesus will come back when these things happen. Now, a lot of people look at this whole sermon and they say, I mean, this kind of sounds a lot like what happened in 70 AD when the temple was destroyed. The problem is, what he says here, when these things happen, he's at the very gates. He's near. And one thing I can be very confident of is Jesus did not return already. He did not come back to this world. I think that's, that's a wrong interpretation of Scripture to say that Jesus already returned at some point. Um, that's wrong. Uh, But the reason this is complicated is in verse 34 where he says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And admittedly, that's that's a hard verse to interpret because did all these things happen while the generation that was standing in front of Jesus passed away? Like, no, I don't think they did. It's impossible to claim that they did. So I think maybe the better way of understanding that verse is that all of this will happen in a generation. All of this will happen while that generation is alive. And that's the idea of the fig tree, right? It's, once it's ripe, it's, it's ripe. And that's when you know it's all happening. So remember, what's the setup to the Olivet Discourse? It's the disciples asking, what's going to happen when you come back? So this is future looking from our perspective. And then in verse 36 through the end of chapter 25, we get teaching of Jesus where he applies those truths. He says, all right, so that stuff's going to happen. So what kind of a Christian should you be? He says, you should be a Christian that's ready for my return because no one knows the day or the hour. He says, don't think that, okay, now I gave you all this information about the end. You're going to figure out the timing of exactly when it's going to take place and you can put it on your calendar. He says, no, it's the opposite, which is so interesting. Because a lot of people that get obsessed with eschatology start thinking that they can figure out exactly when it's going to happen. It's like, well, listen to what Jesus said. He said the opposite. He gives all this information, and then he tells you, you don't know the day or the hour, so you should always live ready. You should live like my return is imminent, like it could come in any generation. It could come at any time. So he says, stay awake, for you don't know on what day your Lord is coming. And then he gives these analogies like, be a faithful and wise servant that the master has set over the house. Be someone who's working like you expect the master to come in the door and break in and say, what's going on over here? Are you working for me or not? That's the kind of Christians that we should live like. And then he he gives more parables that that share the same idea, Uh, two in particular, one in in chapter 25 about the ten virgins, five of whom are wise, five of whom are not. The ones that are wise are the ones who stay awake and they, they have extra oil for their lamps. And the idea is at the end, Watch, therefore, for you don't know the day or the hour. Point is, Christians should live ready in any generation. Same thing with the parable of the talents. You have Jesus saying, it's like a master who gives all these talents, which is money. You give these these items of money to your servants. Who's going to invest it? Who's not? There's one type of servant that is a good and faithful servant. And then there's another type of servant that is a wicked and slothful servant. Right? Good and evil, or wicked, are opposites. Faithful and slothful are opposites. So you're going to be one or the other. You're either going to be one who works and does while Jesus is gone, or you're going to be one who's lazy and doesn't ever do what Jesus says. And that's brought into the most sharp focus at the end of chapter 25, when it says the Son of Man will come in his glory with his angels, and he will separate people like a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. That's the most poignant way to say this. That Jesus is going to separate people, and it's not based on what they say they believe. It's not based on what they claim to have done. It's on what they actually did. It's very important, and I think it's a key to understanding the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus is always saying, you need to not just believe what I say. You need to do what I say. You're going to prove to me that you believe it by doing it. Right? Belief is very important. That's That's first. But doing it is going to prove, are you serious about this or not? It's the exact way that Jesus ended the Sermon on the Mount, if you remember. He said, a wise person hears my words and does them. A foolish person hears my words and does not do them. So, what kind of person are you going to be? Are you going to be a person who does what Jesus says? Are you going to be a person who actually helps God's people like we see here in the final judgment? Or are you going to be a person who knows a lot about God? Are you going to be a person who has heard a lot of sermons, that has... uh, Claim to want to do a lot of things and had a lot of good intentions, but never actually put your Christianity into practice. You want to be that faithful and good servant who does that. Then in chapter 26, the last chapter we'll cover this week, it's all about how Jesus is betrayed to be crucified. Uh, Judas betrays him. Peter says he's going to stick up for him, but he doesn't. And then in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see Jesus praying for God's will to be done, which is a callback to the Lord's prayer where Jesus taught us to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus essentially prays the same thing. Not my will, but yours be done. Now, that's a good life motto as a disciple of Christ. Not my will, but yours be done. Now, that's all that we are going to read this week. A lot is contained here, a lot of important questions, a lot of important things. I'm excited for you to dig into it, and I hope that as you dig into it, God will continue to show you wondrous things from his law, and I continue to pray that you all would continue to grow in your knowledge of God, and more importantly, in your obedience to God's word. So we'll see you back here next week for the Daily Bible Reading Snapshot podcast.